All right. Well, if you are a football fan, you know that February 12th is coming. What's February 12th? Super Bowl Sunday. Now, every year, everyone, you know, if you're a football fan, but maybe you're not a football fan, but you just love those commercials, right? You stick around for the commercials and you say, I'll get through this terrible game just so that I can watch the commercials or the movie trailers. You know, they always come out with something. But for the majority of us that like football and have been watching the season, we are waiting to see who is going to be the new champion, right? We're waiting to see who is going to win the Lombardi Trophy this year. One of the things that I was watching it last year, me and my friend Derek, actually, he, uh, we were talking about how much glory this trophy gets and how the players almost have like this worship experience with this trophy. There's so much glory that's given to this trophy. It's getting kissed by the players, touched by the coaches. It's making its way through the middle of the, uh, of the players. It's unbelievable. This trophy is lifted up high for all to see the adoration and the honor of such glory. It's a trophy. But yet, it's responded with so much adoration and love and appreciation. It made me wonder this morning, how do we see the glory of God this morning? How do we this morning see the glory of God? Is it as simple as a football trophy, as simple as an event like the Super Bowl? Or is the glory of God so much more than sometimes we make it out to be? Is the glory of God, the adoration, the awe-ness of God, I would say that it is. Today we're going to see and we're going to be looking at the seriousness of God. Today we're going to be seeing the, glory, the seriousness of the glory of God and it will lead us to repentance. So if you guys want to put the main um, slide up there first. So here's my main point this morning. If you are a note taker, the glory of God is serious, but it will lead us to repentance because of his grace and his patience. So that is our main point. That is what we're going to be unpacking today in God's word. And then for each four points there, it's going to be supporting that main point. The glory of God cannot be used. The glory of God will not be shared. The glory of God is to be taken seriously. And last, the glory of God leads us to repentance and faith. Okay, I'm going to leave that up there. So when you're taking notes, you'll be able to do that. I have some other slides as well. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. Now, I don't want to scare you guys because this is not going to be, we're not going to be in here till the meeting at 4 o'clock, all right? We're going to read and I'm going to examine certain parts of the text and get the main things that I want to communicate, all right? So it's not going to be four chapters we're going to go through literally line by line, but we are going to read the text because I think it's God's word and it's important to read the text, but we're going to go through specifically the main idea and the four points that we have here. Now, the Bible, when it uses the word glory, it has the root word heavy or weighty. 
heavy or weighty. And so what the writers of scriptures want us to understand about the glory of God this morning is that the glory of God is to understood as serious and heavy. It is not to be taken lightly. And we're going to see in these four chapters how the serious of God is not to be taken lightly. I want to highlight two different things as we go th- before we go into the text, because you're going to be hearing the Philistines a lot throughout the text, and you're going to be hearing the Ark of the Covenant a lot throughout the text. Now, the Philistines, if you are not familiar with them, they were an ancient people group that held the land of Canaan before Moses was told, this is the promised land that you will be given, right? We all know Moses was told, like, this is the land that I'm going to give uh, uh, Israel. The problem was the Philistines were already there. So there's been conflict between the Philistines and Israel ever since Israel has claimed And there's been conflict throughout 1 Samuel. You're going to be seeing consistent fighting between Israel and the Philistines over and over and over again. And this is one of those times. We're going to walk in in one of the battles that Israel was having with the Philistines. Second, we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant. We're first introduced to the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. Not going to go there. But if you want to, that is where we're first introduced to the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And basically, just to sum it up, the Ark of the Covenant was a visible sign of the holy presence of the Lord. His real throne is high above the heavens, but the Ark was a focal point of God's actual presence among his people. God dwelled with his people in the Ark, right? So it's, the Ark was serious, Moses had put the Ten Commandments and he put them and stored them in there. God dwelt with this people within the ark. So you're going to be seeing those two specific things over and over as we're going through chapter 4 through 7. Let's begin chapter 4. Let's read. And the word of Samuel, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apex. The Philistines drew up line against Israel, and when the battle was spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. But when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shalom, that it may be that it may come among us and save us from the powers of our enemy. So the people went to Silo and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and two of the sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout, so that all the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard of the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come over the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of the mighty gods? 
These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled from every man to home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Up to this point, Israel has been consistently disobedient. Up to this point, Israel has consistently fallen short of the glory of God. See, Israel was consistently worshiping other idols. They were continually falling away from God calling them back to himself. Israel will come and then wander away. We have seen in the previous chapter that Eli, the high priest, has also not pleased the Lord, including his sons, right? We see that in chapter 3, verse 12. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli. I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to the end. We know that Eli, the high priest, and his sons were not, especially his sons, were not good people. They were not people of the Lord. And Eli himself did not correct them. But we also seen in the last previous chapter, Samuel has been called by God in chapter 3, verse 19. See, God will use Samuel as a way to lead Israel back to himself. God's consistent grace is a reminder that he's not done with Israel. He's not done with them. But yet, in verse 3, Israel was defeated. They were defeated. And they asked themselves, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They wondered, how is it possible that we were defeated? We're God's people. So they thought to themselves, wait a minute, we have, we have the ark. Let's bring the ark and let's, let's experience the power of God. Let's see if we can use God to our advantage and go into battle, and surely we would defeat the Philistines. They believed that if they brought the ark out of battle, that surely God would be with them. Now here, there's no indication up to this point that Israel has repented and turned from their idols. Why Israel would believe that God would deliver them? Well, perhaps they treated God as as a good luck charm. Perhaps they saw him as that rabbit's foot, believing that if they can surely have the ark there, the Philistines would be defeated. They thought, you know what? The ark is our advantage. Let us bring it out. And so verse 6, they gave out this great shout. I don't know what type of shout it would have been, but they gave out a shout. Holding confident, right? There was this confidence in them. Like, like I imagine, like, you're at a basketball game and, like, the team is garbage, and Michael Jordan shows up, and you're like, that's our star player. We're going to win this game. 
And they're all and shouting, confident, boasting in the Lord. Now, this caught the attentions of the Philistines because they're like, whoa, what is going on here? In verse 10, they're, they're, they're you know, not verse 10, verse, um, verse 8, verse 7. A God has come into camp, and they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Can God deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians from every sort of plague in the wilderness. It's interesting that the Philistines themselves understand and remember that God, you know, in Egypt sent all types of plague against Pharaoh. And they're like, wait a minute, this is, this, this is the same God that we're going to have a problem here. The irony here is that the Philistine, the Philistines seem to remember and take God more serious than Israel does. That's the irony here. And also, what I thought was amazing, that the seriousness of God has an echo in history. The glory of God, the seriousness of God has an echo in history that even in the Philistines, they, they know of such event of Egypt. And yet, Israel, in verse 10, was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Why would God not deliver Israel? Were they not his chosen people? Were they not the nation that will be a light to the nations? Of course they are. God has not forgotten Israel. Israel has forgotten God. Israel has forgotten God and therefore have forgotten the seriousness of the glory of God. This morning I'll ask you, how often do we think that we can use God as our advantage? How often can we think that if, as long as I come to church on Sundays, I give a portion of my income... God, surely all things will be blessed. Lord, I, you know, I, I, I pray before dinner, but I live my life the same way, as if your glory means nothing. But I do the things I'm supposed to do. Surely I will be blessed. We can often make God as this good luck charm and take him out when we need him. We can say, Monday through Friday, I'm good. But when things start to trouble up, things start to get bad, all right, God, where you at? Somewhere here. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek you. I'm going to look for you. I can use this. And these are the false understandings of the glory of God. And like Israel, we will fail to see the need to repent and see the heaviness of our sin. Because we too can often fail to see the glory of God. And like Israel was defeated, we will also be defeated. Our continual of thinking we can use God will often and will backfire us every single time. God has something to say about his glory today. Let's continue to see what God has to say. 
We know that the ark is stolen. The ark is gone. The Philistines have possession. But God's glory will not be shared. You want to put the slide back up for me there? We're on our second point. The glory of God will not be shared. Let's read. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. With his clothes torn and with dirt on his head, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled before for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told all the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is the uproar? The man hurried and came to and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am, I am he who has come from battle. I have fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of the God had been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken. And he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she had heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law, her husband, were dead, she bowed and gave birth. For her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Isabad saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for God has been captured. Israel has been defeated and the ark was stolen, but God will not be mocked or be robbed. We're going to see two different things here. I'm going to, we're going to look at Eli, and then we're going to go to the Philistines in the same, uh, in the same uh, category in, uh, in our main point there. God's promises are never empty as the Lord fulfills the oath that he will remove the house of Eli. In chapter 2, verse 30, he says that. He says, therefore the Lord of God, in chapter 2, verse 30, therefore the Lord of God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor those who despise me. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will be none, there will, be, there will, be, will not be an old man in your house. God fulfills his promises. Not only does Eli's sons die, but we are told that Eli dies as well. We're told in verse 19, as soon as Eli hears that the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, he dies. It's almost like he saw 
that his sons would be cut off. But the Ark of the Covenant, he couldn't fathom the idea that losing the glory of God within his people could happen. And we're told that he flips over backwards in his chair and dies. Where is the glory of God? Remember, Eli's daughter in verse 21 says, the glory of God is gone. The ark has been stolen. She even names her son that way as a reminder that the glory of God is gone. Where is the glory of God? Yes, God has departed, but he departed long before the ark. Not because of his choosing, because the people of Israel have already robbed the glory of God. Israel has abandoned God by their disobedience. Where is the glory of God? In a sense, yes, the ark has been stolen. But in a real way, the glory of God was missing from Israel for a long time. Specifically here in the story of Eli, the high priest. It's interesting that the writer, Eli, the writer wants us to know that Eli was old and heavy. In verse in chapter 2, verse 29, we are told, I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. It seems that Eli was robbing the glory of God and taking the offerings that were given and he was enjoying a lot of it. And it's interesting that Eli here is told not just to be old, but that he was heavy. It seems that Eli was robbing the glory of God through the offerings. We know that his sons were robbing the glory of God. We know that because clearly in the last couple chapters, we're told that the sons of Eli were robbing the glory of God. But we're also told that Eli himself was doing very similar like his sons. In chapter 5, we're going to see the same way Eli robbed the glory of God. The Philistines also we'll see that God's glory will not be shared. Let's read chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashad. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashad rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when he rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon had his hands cut off and were lying, and were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not threat, do not threat on the threshold of Dagon and Ashad that day. So here we find an interesting, an interesting story. 
the ark is put in with this pagan god, Dagon, who apparently had second importance to their other gods. But he was the supreme god who functions as a god of vegetation. So basically, this was the god that they would pray to when they wanted good crops to grow, when they wanted things to to have a, a great year, no famines. This would be that god. And yet God, Yahweh, shows that he will not be robbed of his glory. We see that in the text, they put him right next to him, and he falls downward on his face. And so they put him back up there, thinking, okay, that's weird. Maybe the wind. And then again, but this time they couldn't say it was the wind. His hands were cut off, and only the trunk was left. God is telling not just the Philistines, but everyone that his glory will not be shared with foreign gods. Now this warning, this morning is not just for the people of Israel, but also, and not not just the Philistines, but this morning, that is also a warning for us. God's glory will not be shared with the things that we put above him. And what is it we put above him sometimes? Money, success. What are the things in your life right now that are currently keeping you from seeing the glory of God this morning? Maybe there are things that we don't necessarily see as idols. Maybe there are things that we don't necessarily see as idols. Maybe our health, our future, future job opportunities. We put those things, we elevate those things more than we do of God. And so we put them off the pedestal and we put whatever is really in our hearts that's dwelling in us. We put some of that hope and the glory of our lives here. And we forget that the glory of God is what will last forever. Those things that we often chase through, those things that often that our hearts easily are captured by, God will not be robbed by his worship or shared. Ultimately, those things will not uphold. Those things will not last. And like the Philistines saw with their idols cut, The Lord will strip us sometimes of the things that we often put before his throne. The Lord will strip us often of things that we have replaced his glory for. God's glory is to be taken serious. He will not be robbed. He will not be used. He will not be shared. His glory is to be taken serious. He wants you, your heart. The glory of God is to be taken serious. That's my third point this morning. Chapter 6. I'm sorry. I'm going to go back to um, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, because I don't want us to miss this. 
The hand of the Lord was every, very heavy against Israel of the people. The, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashad. And he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors. Both Ashad and its territory. And when the men of Ashad saw the things that were done, the ark of, the, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What should we do with the ark of God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the Lord back to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people cried out. They brought around, they brought around to us the ark of God and all of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent, therefore, and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away and have it returned to its own people, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. What are the Philistines to do? They cannot live with the presence of the glory of God. We're told here, thank you. We're told here, that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people. Verse 6. And their response, after receiving these tumors, they're like, yo, we got to get them out of here. We got to get the ark out of here. What are we to do? So they start circulating the ark of the covenant to other places. Only to find out that those same tumors that originated where they, the ark was originally stolen was growing among them. And so they send it back and they said, okay, what are we to do here? They cannot live in the presence of God. So they said, we got to send it back. Therefore, the heaviness of God will lift away. And in chapter 6, I'm not going to read all of it. I just want to focus on some parts. Chapter 6, we're told that the Ark of the Covenant was on its way back to Israel. And we're told in the first verse, seven months have passed. Seven months have passed. Can you imagine the amount of pain and infliction that the Philistines have occurred within those months? And they finally break. They finally say, we got to get rid of this. But they have an idea. They said, in verse 3, they said, If you send it away, the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. They're, they're saying, wait a minute. I can't, not only do we want the ark of the covenant out of here, but we need to make an offering. And so they do. And what do they do? And how do they do it? They said, what is the gift offering that we should return to him? They answered in verse 4, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. 
For the same plagues was on all of you and on all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to God of Israel. Perhaps he would lighten his hand from us. And again, verse 6, the Philistines' understanding of the history and the glory of God. Why should you harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Once again, the Philistines have an understanding of the glory of God. They have the history of seeing God at work. And so Philistines are saying, we do not want to continue in this way. God is, this, this God is serious business. And so they, might, they make themselves five golden tumors and five golden mice. Now this one was really interesting to me because I couldn't figure out how do you make a golden tumor and mice? How do those two connect? I had a picture of what I think might look like. I mean, that's what I got off Google, all right? So, I mean, I, I mean that looks like a rock to me. But I, I can see a mass, a tumor there. Now, why mice? That, that was interesting to me because I couldn't figure out why would God, I mean, why would the Philistines create also an offering of mices? And I kept reading commentaries off the commentaries and it finally got something I thought was really interesting. It's possible, one commentary says, that the mice are mentioned because God had caused mice to attack their grains and it would be a specific challenge to their pagan god, Dagon. Remember, Dagon was responsible for vegetation. Remember, the Philistines have been talking about the glory of God in Egypt. So God is saying, in the same way as I have showed my glory in Egypt, surely I will show you that your pagan gods have nothing against me. Now, clearly, we don't see that in the text. We're not sure that that's what's the case. But most commentaries agree that this is a very possibility that was happening because, again, they are making these tumors as a way to say, Lord, lift these tumors out of our own bodies. So it's very possible that the mice were destroying their fields and they were saying, let's do the same thing with the tumors, let's do it with the mice. And in verse 7, the priests of the Philistines have an idea. See, it's interesting enough, the Philistines are saying a lot about God, right? Oh, man, like God is powerful. We're seeing him at work in Egypt, and now we're seeing him here. But they're still not convinced. They're still not convinced, so they come up with this scheme in verse 7 in chapter 6. This is a reality, by the way, that you can see God's glory and completely miss it. This is a reality. This, this just struck me right now. This is one of those moments where the spirit is like, look up, I got something to say. We can see the glory of God and completely miss the glory of God and look for other reasons to explain it. Some of us here have been coming to church for a very long time. And you have missed the glory of God. You are still doing the same things you were doing before you said you had believed and trusted in Christ. 
Do not be like the Philistines and completely ignore the glory of God because you will not stand. Look what they do in verse 7. Now, then they take, so in verse uh, 6, why should we harden our hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts? And after he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away and they did not depart. Now then, Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And the ark of the Lord and place the ark of the Lord on it and put in the box the figures of the gold, which we are returning to him as a guilt offering and then send it off and let it go. And we'll watch and see if it goes to the, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done these great harm to us. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Again, they have clearly seen the series and, and experienced it in a very physical way. And yet they think, okay, let's tie these milk, these, let's tie these cows together. Let's put the ark on here, right? And again, they use new cows as a saying, okay, they have never pulled anything, so they can go in either direction. Now, if God is really doing this, he will move it in the direction that it needs to go. Sure enough, verse 10, the car pushing the ark makes its way all the way to Beth Shemesh. And we're told in verse 15 that the Levites sacrifice an offering to the Lord. But this does not end with a happy ending for the people. Verse 19, again, God's glory is serious. And he struck some of the men at Beshemish because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord struck the people with a great blow. Then the man of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? God's holiness is no joke. Who can stand in such a presence of a holy God? Even God's, even the ark is back. And yet the people saw into the ark and they could not fathom or stand in the presence of such glory. And they were struck down immediately. What hope does Israel have? What hope do we have such glory? Well, the good news is that God has a plan. The good news is that God, in his glory, in the awe of his holiness, knows that we can't stand before him in our current condition. 
And yet God provides. Yet God provides in chapter 7, and he provides for us. Look at chapter 7. Verse 3. We're back, and we're introduced to Samuel. We haven't seen him in a little bit, but we're back. And Samuel says to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with your hearts and put away, sorry, let me, lost my notes here. Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the land, of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bowels and the Ashtoreth and they serve the Lord only. Previously to this, we are told that the ark of God was in this, um, in chapter 7, it looks like the ark makes its way to another place. And we're told that it was there for a long time. Chapter 7, verse 2. From that day, the ark was lodged at Carithajerim. Uh, a long time passed, 20 years, all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years of lamenting, and the ark finds itself in a temporary home. Israel is possibly groaning this loss, this relationship with God, this dwelling place. And so chapter 3, chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel sees this. Samuel sees the lamenting. He sees the pain. He's seen the brokenness of Israel. Up to this point, we have not seen Israel lament. Up to this point, there hasn't been a brokenness to their understanding that God is not among them. And so Samuel sees this, and he calls for them to repent. And he says, if you're returning to the Lord, put away all foreign gods among you. A call to repentance. He tells Israel, turn away from them. And then God surely will deliver you. After 20 years, finally, Israel responds. And in verse 9, we see Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound. It wasn't the people that shouted. God shouted. And the Philistines threw them into, and he threw the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before the Lord. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mezephah and Shen and called its, play, called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. Samuel takes this nursing lamb. Israel repents. 
Israel acknowledges. They throw out their foreign gods. They throw out everything that was keeping them from knowing the glory of God. And Israel and Samuel takes the nursing lamb and offers it as a burnt offering. Repentance and forgiveness requires the payment of blood. And Samuel, and then Israel defeats the Philistines. God gives his mighty shout. God delivers Israel. And then Samuel takes his stone and calls it Ebenezer. For till now, the Lord has helped us. God has not deserted Israel. God has not abandoned Israel. God has caused Israel to buckle their knees and bow and repent and know the glory of God. And Israel, after 20-something years, finally gets it and bows before the king and says, we acknowledge the weight of our own sin. It will not stand against you. Let me ask you this morning, are you lamenting towards your own sin this morning? We cannot stand before the holy, glorious God. And we've seen that in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. Alone on our own, we cannot stand before the glory of God. God knows this, and he provides a lamb. He provides the lamb, the one who will give us a right standing with him, the one that will give us his life and take ours out, the one who shed his blood on a cross, Jesus, the anointed one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God Alone, you will perish. You will fall. But thank God for Jesus Christ. By his... Verse 21 in chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, listen... Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom by God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in him, his divine forbearance has passed away from our former sins to show his righteousness at the present time. The same way that Samuel places the stone and calls it as Ebenezer, which means till now the Lord has helped us Jesus is our Ebenezer. He rescued us, and when we had nowhere to go, he came and he found us, and he made us righteous because of his blood. He found us, and he justified us by his grace. The Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world, he calls us 
to repent. See, there is no experiencing the mercies, the love, and the goodness of God and the glory of the king if there is no repentance. Why do we repent? Because we understand that in our own righteousness, we would not stand against the glory of God. Repentance is agreeing with God about our sin and trusting in faith in the finished work of Jesus. It means we no longer serve the old ways, but we have a new identity in Christ. Are you lamenting this morning? Do you recognize and see your sin? If you know Christ this morning, but like Israel, we are prone to wander. We just sang that song. We are prone to wander. Let me remind you this morning. Behold the glory of God and stand in awe before him. This will change how you see yourself in sin. As I was reading and preparing for this sermon, God was exposing sin in my life in such a way that it was hard to see because I couldn't see it before. But when I was beholding the glory of God, when I was saying, Lord, you're holy and I'm sitting in awe of who you are, it changed the way I saw him and how I saw my own sin. And it led to repentance. It led to saying, Lord, alone on my own standing, I cannot please you. I cannot see your glory. And sometimes I call for you, believer, who knows Christ. God is calling you to behold his glory and stand in all of him that you will see your sin and turn to him and repent and be receive the mercies of God. 1 John chapter 1, 9, for all who confess will be forgiven. All who confess will be made clean. Maybe this morning, you don't know Christ. I plead with you, stop trusting in your own standing. You will fail. Trust in Christ who died for you so that in him, you will see the glory of the Son. In him, we will see the glory of God because Christ has redeemed us. He has given us a new identity. He has clothed us in his righteousness. He has justified us. And the day will come when we will stand before the king in his glory. We will not perish, but we will rejoice. And we will sing songs, come thy fountain of every blessing. I, I am with this. One day we will be in the presence of his glory because of God, because of his grace, and the one who makes it possible. Isaiah 
chapter 60, verse 19, 21 says, no longer you, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for the everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And that is our hope in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you then. Lord, Lord uh, we cannot stand in your glory, but we thank you for the one that has provided a way for us to behold and be in all of you. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that you, Lord, would uh, reveal to us what needs to be revealed as we trust you and we look forward to the day that we are in your presence. Lord, may your glory shine brightly and may we see it and behold and stand in awe and worship the mighty God. May we take your glory serious this morning. But may we trust in your son this morning that he is the one that has given us his righteousness, that through him we will know the Father. And because of you, Jesus, the gates of heaven will open up and your glory will be in our presence forevermore. In your name we pray these things. Amen.